0: I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Do not let the love of the world or the things in the world... so Do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but of, of the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever children it is the last hour and as you have heard the antichrist is coming so now many antichrists have come therefore we know that it is the last hour they went out from us but they were not of us for if they had been of us they would have continued with us but they went out that it might become plain that they are all that they are not of us but you have been anointed by the holy one and you all have knowledge i write to you not because you do not know the truth I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you, but the anointing that you received from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything, and it is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness, righteousness has been born of him.
1: Hello, everyone. I apologize for my D team's terrible efforts. (laughs) That's not true. No, we took the average number of attendees and added ten, and apparently wasn't enough. So, welcome if this is uh, this is not your normal service. Glad to have you here. I want to make a quick apology for my voice. I had a number of complaints that it was so charming to the point of being hypnotic, Um, so I've I've taken the liberty of contracting whatever's going around and knock it down a bit, Um, and so that should be a little bit easier to handle. It may mean at some point I'll have to throw out my hand for a lifeline and get a, a glass of water, but otherwise, we should do just fine. I'm going to pray, and then we'll start looking at this passage. Father God, thank you for your word. Please open it to our hearts and open up our hearts to your word. In the name of your son, Jesus Christ, amen. I invite you to have your Bibles open if you have your paper copies or even your electronic copies. Um, We'll be stepping through the passage reasonably rapidly because there's a fair bit of content there, Um, but I'm gonna try and capture it all. So one of our cardinal rules for reading through a passage is that if something is repeated over and over again, we can either be reasonably sure that that itself is very important or that it's a marker for something immediately near it that will be important. And the key phrase for this passage, and for most of one John, is, I am writing to you. You may have noticed that come up like ten times in there. I am writing to you, I write to you, I do not write to you. This is John spelling out his intentions for us in this letter, or the intentions for those he's writing to specifically, which we can take to heart as well. He tells us what he wants to achieve and why he wants to achieve it, and the prime example of that comes just before the passage we read and echoes onto everything else. It's John saying, I write this to you so that you will not sin. Everything else is an outgrowth of that. I am writing to you a new commandment. Why? So that you will not sin. I am writing to you so that your joy may be complete. How will your joy be complete? By not sinning. So keep that idea of the avoidance of sin and kind of the top left corner of your mind for the duration of this book and the studies through the rest of, uh, of this 1 John. So, we're going to begin at uh, verse 7, and we'll look through this. We're looking at, Dear friends, I am not writing you a new command, but an old one, which you have had since the beginning. This old command is the message you have heard, yet I am writing to you a new command. Its truth is seen in him and you, because the darkness is passing and a true light is already shining. I am not writing to you a new command, but an old one which is new. Already a confusing start. What command is this exactly that we've heard that is apparently this old and new command? John doesn't tell us precisely in that passage. He expects us to already know, but the context makes it clear as he moves on that anyone who claims to be in the light but hates a brother or sister is still in the darkness. Anyone who loves their brother and sister lives in the light and there is nothing in them to make them stumble. But anyone who hates a brother or sister is in the darkness and walks around in the darkness and they know not where they are going because the darkness has blinded them. He's talking about the command to love one another and the implied extension of that to not hate one another. This is both an old and a new command. It's old because the Jews have had it for a very long time. It showed up in the Mosaic law thousands of years prior, or 1,200 or so years prior to this at least, in Leviticus 19.18. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So it's an old commandment there, but it's also just about the most famous of Jesus' teachings. And he says in the Gospel of John 13:34, a new commandment I give to you to love one another, even as I have loved you. And that's the key. That's why it's also new in addition to being old, to love our neighbor as Christ has loved you. Not just as you love yourself, but as Christ has demonstrated. The old commandment is validated and demonstrated in the way that Christ lives it out if we really believe that Christ's sacrifice on the cross was the supreme act of love, then before that, there was no example, no referent, nothing to point to to really tell us what we were being commanded to do. But now we have that, and that's why it's become a new command for us. So the old command gets a cut and polish and a final perfect example, which John, in our passage today, exhorts his readers to follow, not because they don't know, but precisely because they do, and he's reminding them to cling to what they do know, to keep them firm in faith for what comes next. So then John folds back into his light and darkness talk, his light and darkness metaphor he's particularly fond of, and you remember maybe at the beginning of the gospel of John, he writes about the true light coming into the world. And failing, or the world failing to know it. And in this letter, he's talking about that same light. Jesus is the light that came into the world. And if you love your brother and sister, then you are living in Jesus. You are living in that light in the world. And then comes this troubling statement Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates a brother or sister is still in the darkness. One of the surreal aspects of working in youth ministry is that you get to watch individual young people going from being helplessly needing to be dropped everywhere by their parents to suddenly having their own cars and turning up at their own time schedule. And many of you are responsible for loosing this menace on the world. And there is a long-standing debate about whether or not it is worth them getting a manual driver's license or an automatic driver's license. My father was old school, he made sure I bunny-hopped my poor charade around an empty Woolworths parking lot enough to learn what a clutch was. But more and more young people are opting just to go with the automatic license. Some parents like that idea because it means that you can literally just have the good family car which they cannot possibly borrow. But if you were confronted by a bright-eyed teenager who told you they just got their license to drive any car that doesn't have an accelerator, you'd think they lost their mind. He might be able to steer it down hills if someone tows it up there for him. And he might know the road rules back to front, but a car without an accelerator is a billy card. So you'd have to say, sorry, son, but whoever gave you that license has quite ironically taken you for a ride. And so this brings us to an uncomfortable point of our faith. If you genuinely hate a brother or sister, you are not in the light. It's the most elementary part of the teaching of Jesus Christ that we are to love one another. It's so fundamental that not having it locked down is a powerful sign that you're not there yet. Other things, other habits and sins, anger issues, addictive behaviors, sexual sin, these things do not often dry up immediately upon one finding God and receiving Christ into their life to be their Lord and Savior. Those things often take time and a lot of work through the Holy Spirit, we call this sanctification, to become more sanctified over time to work those sins and habits out of our lives. But this love, hate function of the heart is core. It's the part that's supposed to change and then every other change comes out from that. It's the part of us that's transformed and we are given a new heart. The first thing that happens when we give up our old life is that we have our sin taken away and our old very fleshy, very flawed heart is taken away from us. We're given a new spirit-infused whole heart and then for the rest of our natural lives That new heart in us, that new man or woman, is to conquer and burn away the sin of the rest. But loving one another is the mark of a follower of Christ. It's not something we kind of learn over time. We get better at it. But if you don't have it, then you have a lot to think about. Now, there is some nuance here to this. Having a flare of anger at someone because you've had a fight is not the same as hate in the same way that a little blurt of infatuation, particularly which young hearts are prone to, is not the same as love. But it can be nurtured and developed into love. And a grudge or a dispute can be nurtured and developed into hate. But the antidote is clear in Jesus' demonstration of this new old commandment, where he refused to hold a grudge or to nurture hate even against those who were nailing him to the cross at the time. When he said, Father, forgive them, they do not know what they do. That's how we're called to love. Now, the next little portion, portion of our passage has the potential to be a great deal more complicated than this, but we'll try not to let it because it doesn't have to be. John has been giving us his I am writing to you statements intermittently through this and then he gives us a block of six that looks almost like a poem between verses 12 and 14. He says, I am writing, I am writing, I am writing, I write, I write, I write. Now, The first are participles acting as verbs, the second lot are present continuous verbs. What does that mean? I'm not sure it's more than a stylistic flourish. Some commentators will disagree. If you want to know what some commentators say, I would love to talk to you about it after but I would like to suggest to you that's just the way that John writes. He felt it read better, he felt it was more impacting and memorable. But nonetheless, we get these six statements, right one after another, and more intriguing than that, and I think perhaps more important, is the way we have these three groups. He says, I write to children, fathers, young men, children, fathers, young men. Who are the children and the fathers and the young men? Commentators disagree. If you want to know, blah, 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 ask me after. But I'll tell you what I've discovered and what I feel is correct here. And then we can argue about it later. I think they are the same group, and I think he's talking to everyone each time. He calls people dear children again and again later on in this passage. Dear children seems to cover everyone. And so I think that the fathers and the young men are... uh, referent to the group as well. So let me explain what I mean by that. Here's verses 12 to 14 again. "'I am writing to you, dear children, "'because your sins have been forgiven "'on account of his name. "'I am writing to you, fathers, "'because you know him from the, who was from the beginning. "'I am writing to you, young men, "'because you have overcome the evil one. "'I write to you, dear children, "'because you know the Father. "'I write to you, fathers, "'because you know him who is from the beginning. "'I write to you, young men, "'because you are strong.'" And the word of God lives in you, and you have overcome the evil one. So, what is he writing to the children? What is that meant to mean? Because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name, and because you know the Father. What's the defining feature of children, of being a child? It's that they have parents, in this case, specifically a heavenly Father. All the readers are children of God because they know, verse 14, they know the Father. And they know him because, verse 12, their sins have been forgiven on account of Jesus' name. They're dear children because they are reconciled to their father in heaven. So why does he call them then fathers? Both in 13 and 14, it's because they know him who is from the beginning, they know. If you recall, John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the, help me out youth, Exactly. In the beginning was the word. So the one who is from the beginning is the word. That's the one that the fathers know. So they're children in the sense they are gathered into the father's presence. They're all children of God but they're fathers in the sense they know God. They have that wisdom. They understand who Jesus is and as fathers they're expected to be teachers to have a responsibility to do that. This is the first generation of church fathers as the apostles are beginning to vanish into obscurity and they have that responsibility to be wise and leading and have that fatherly role. I think mothers is also implied there, but the masculine is kept to for the duration. I don't think that means that this doesn't apply to wise women teaching young women as well. So why is he writing then to young men, if we're talking children, fathers, young men? Verse 13, because they have overcome the evil one, and verse 14, because you are strong, And the word of God lives in you, and you have overcome the evil one. For all the injustices heaped upon women in the old world, diminished legal status and a worth based almost exclusively around the ability to yield children to name a couple, it's young men who are consistently rounded up through history and sent off to war at the sign of conflict. And it's this image, the young men as warriors for God's righteousness that I think John is calling up here for us, because they are strong and the word of God lives in them and has enabled them to overcome the evil one. John writes to all believers that they have what it takes and that they are overcoming the evil one by the strength he has given them, or rather by the strength that the Father has given them. So... We have that they are children of God, fathers of the church, and young warriors of God, given strength to deflect the devil. That's a pretty encouraging block of words, almost suspiciously encouraging, in the way that a grandparent might ask, You're pretty good at computers, right? Or one friend might say to another, it Must be really handy to own that ute. What are you doing on Saturday? And do you own a weightlifting girdle? Only John isn't looking for a personal favor here. We know he's writing, like he said from the start, so that they would not sin. This barrage of encouragement about why he is writing to them tells us that he expects there to be problems. He's encouraging them in the face of difficulties that he expects might cause them to sin. And that's exactly what he's about to warn them about. First, the world in verses 15 to 17 and then later about the antichrists in the rest of the chapter. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, lust of the eye, pride of life, comes not from the Father, but from the world. Now, like the statement about hate earlier, this is another big claim, a line in the sand. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in them. Is John saying we can't like, even sort of love movies, food, friends, material, earthly things? I don't think he's being that extreme. No, not unless we are living for those things. I lost a friend once over an argument about music. He was growling very emotionally about how pop music was ruining music. I offended him by maintaining that pop music is there because it is popular music, And that it's only there because people like it. And you can dislike it, but you can't say it's ruining music. His response, being a musician, was very impassioned. Hey man, music is my life. I told him I thought he had a very small and unimpressive life. His response to that is best not recorded for posterity, but... The point is that the truth we have, the truth that God has opened up eternal life to us through the forgiveness of sins made available in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ is so big and so powerful that it must necessarily become the baseline for our entire life. It's the foundation upon which everything else must rest. Pleasures, Pains, Pursuits and Plans. In short, it's fun to build sandcastles even if they are small and impermanent. But if you saw a man building a very impressive sandcastle and then try to open the door and live in it, you'd think he was either insane or desperately homeless or some combination of the two. What he doesn't have is an actual warm, solid house that will survive high tide. And so John says in verse 17, the world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. Now comes a discussion of antichrists. He begins, dear children, this is the last hour, and obviously not literally the last hour, otherwise he couldn't have expected to write the letter and have it delivered in time, but the last revelation from God came in Jesus Christ. We should not expect a succession of more prophets and more testaments. This is the last chapter. It can't literally be the last hour in that way, but it is the last piece of the puzzle, the last thing that God will do on earth is gather together his children unto Jesus. So how do we know it's the last hour? As you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come This is how we know it is the last hour. The sharp response of the enemy reminds us that there is nothing else to come after this. It's not a proof that you can present to non-Christians and say that we know that Jesus is the Christ because so many people say that he isn't. That's circular logic and proves nothing. But for us who know who Jesus is and who know that there is an evil one, we can look around this world we occupy and the flood of distractions and weird, artificially inflated opposition to our faith, which has at its core the somewhat harmless message of love God and love one another. We're able to look around at that and say that the enemy is really pulling out all the stops, because there's nothing to lose. This is the last battle, and there's none after this one. Now John says, talking about these antichrists, that they went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us, but their going showed that none of them belonged to us. Clearly, then, we are not talking about Antichrist vis a vis the beast of Revelation, nothing with multiple heads. These Antichrists are quite simply people who are anti Christ, they deny Christ, and they have emerged from among these believers to whom John writes. That church has clearly suffered something terrible. They've had people who came in, professed faith in Christ, but then seemed to change their minds and leave. And that is a fact of life for that church and for the church today. We know that when Jesus saves you, you stay saved. Whom the Son sets free is free indeed. And there are former Jews and former atheists and former Muslims, but really no former Christians. Because once you get it, once you really get it, it changes the foundation of your world forever. It swaps your heart for a new one. It can't be undone. You are genuinely transformed. But along with this, this incredible thing that happens in the church comes other things that people can be drawn in by. A church features a community of people who really care. Free morning tea. A high concentration of attractive people around your age bracket. Non-crazy people for that matter. But all of these reasons are passing and impermanent and they won't change a life. And so that church and the church today even this church have the unpleasant reality of knowing that there will be people who come, who stay for a while, who look like they get it, and then they'll decide that Jesus isn't for them, and they'll walk away. And if it's one of your friends, it will break your heart. So John's words are a warning and an encouragement. They will be, rather, There will be people who you thought were hardcore, life-change believers who backslide and fall away. We are not to let this discourage us. The Father does not fail to forgive. The Son does not fail to change a life. And the Spirit does not fail to work in a believer's heart and draw them ever closer to God. Encouragingly, we are, however, not to feel free to blame ourselves when these things don't all happen. God changes hearts, and sometimes we jump the gun in identifying where that's happened. But you can't let yourself ever say, if only I'd tried harder, they would have stayed. And that way lies madness. They couldn't stay, they were never really here. And our responsibility to the one who walks away is the same as to the one who never came. We're to live demonstrating Christ's love. <laughs> Show them the gospel and pray that the Spirit works in their life. John hammers this home between verses 20 and 25. He says that those ones who walked away never really belonged, but you, those who didn't walk away, have an anointing from the Holy One that you know the truth that Jesus is God and that you know the denial of Christ as God's Messiah is a lie. They're a package deal, Jesus and God. If you acknowledge Jesus, you have the Father. If you deny Jesus, you don't have the Father. How can we know then if someone's claim to accept Christ is genuine? If they're going to maybe walk away? It's not that they are willing to confess it after an altar call, it's not even that they are willing to stand up publicly and be baptized but we can tell whether or not they are brothers and sisters, how far along they are someone, if they love God and do His will, and if they do not love the world like they did before. Exactly what John tells us in this passage. The only proof is in the action. There's an old story about Archimedes, the Greek mathematician and inventor who was asked to determine if a certain man was lying or telling the truth a king had commissioned a goldsmith to make a crown, a ceremonial crown, and he had given the goldsmith a certain amount of gold, but he thought that he may be getting cheated. If the goldsmith had kept some of that gold and replaced it with an equal weight of silver, the crown would look very much the same and weigh the same, but not be worth the same. It wouldn't be the thing he asked for and would be visually indistinguishable from the real deal. And the crown was a sacred object, so they couldn't just cut it up or melt it. So the king asks Archimedes if you can find out if this is pure gold or not. Famously, he figures out the solution while sitting in the bathtub and looking at the water level rise as he goes in. Silver being lighter than gold, there has to be more of it to make up the weight. So he gets a bowl of water, puts in the right amount of gold, fills it to the level, takes out the gold, puts in the crown, ball overflows goldsmith loses his head for us the true devotion of our brothers and sisters isn't something we can measure easily on statements or even symbolic gesture but we can know whether or not someone is living according to the word if their life is dominated by god or some other worldly pursuit we can make a certain amount of judgment from the outside and do our best to help and pray. It's not ours to make that decision, but we can be aware. Those signs can indicate to us whether or not someone has really changed and if that person has really been anointed yet by the Holy Spirit. John draws us towards a conclusion with the assurance in his next words. I am writing these things to you to you about those who are trying to lead you astray. As for you, the anointing you received from him remains in you, and you do not need anyone to teach you, but this anointing teaches you about all things, and that anointing is real, not counterfeit, just as it has been taught you. Remain in him. That's the heartbeat of this whole passage. If you are saved, if you've been received into Jesus Christ as him as your Lord and Savior over your life, then you are anointed, you are filled with the Holy Spirit, and that is enough to secure you. The anointing itself is a teacher. It means the Holy Spirit continues to sanctify and teach you. If that's not happening in a Christian's life, if that anointing is counterfeit, it hasn't really triggered yet, then they need someone to teach them. And that's something for us to reflect upon when we pray shortly. Is your life marked by changes? A healthy grasp of the world as a temporary, useful, and interesting, but ultimately passing thing. Distinctly second the will of God. An inability to sustain feelings of hatred against brothers and sisters. And a desire to love and overcome difficulties between them. A life marked by teaching from the Holy Spirit and the legacy of that anointing, that growing and changing. If not, then perhaps something is seriously wrong. In that case, you're in a room full of people who would love to speak to you about this anointing, about the difference between being at church and belonging to God's church. You can talk to me or fill out the yellow slip in your bulletins but just don't walk away like it doesn't matter. It's the only thing that matters. But if you are able to look back and see those marks of change and those behaviors changing in your life, these things coming true for you, becoming more like Christ, then just like those John wrote to, you have everything you need. Children of a forgiving father, fathers and mothers to the young seekers who are coming to know Christ through the wisdom that we've been given. Young soldiers, strong and alive with God's word, overcoming the evil one. There will be trouble. There will be backsliders. There will be antichrists. There will be stumbles and sins. Keep calm. Carry on. Continue in him so that when he appears, we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. Let's pray. Father God, you are the one who sent Jesus Christ to save us, to take away our sins by his death and promise us eternal life by his resurrection, and we thank you. We thank you for the Holy Spirit, whom you have also sent to be with us, and we ask that we are sensitive to those promptings and that, that we can become further sanctified as we carry on in the way that you've shown us. Help us to carry on, to teach us by that anointing. Let us endure these disappointments as they come, God. Focus our lives on you. Cultivate love in our hearts. Help us not to love the world, but to focus on your will. And may we experience the freedom in our lives of resting in that assurance that you're in control, you've equipped us with what we need. An enemy and world and flesh alike will not overcome it. We only need remain in you and have that victory. We ask this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.